Welcome to Endless, a Sandman podcast from Chipperish Media. I'm story expert and bartender showing the king of pain the door, Lonnie Diane Rich. And I'm erstwhile DC Comics editor and Emperor Norton collectible figurine, Elisa Quitney. Today on Endless, we're going to be talking about the first story in Fables and Reflections. Three Septembers in a January was written by Neil Gaiman, drawn by Sean McManus, colored by Danny Vazo, and lettered by Todd Klein. This issue was edited by Karen Berger, assisted by our own Elisa Quitney, cover by Dave McKean. I hesitate to tell you this, but there are certain individuals who have accused me of being, well, mad. Time to wake up. In three Septembers in a January, despair is hovering over Joshua, a man on the brink of suicide. She calls Dream in, demanding that he do something to help the guy. Dream says he's kind of a non-interventionist type and has no interest in playing her games. Still, once despair goads him a bit and blames him for their brother's desertion, he gives in and puts Joshua to sleep so they can have a dude hang. While they talk, Norton says he has nothing to dream of anymore, so Dream gives him a dream. And Norton immediately goes out and declares himself Emperor of the United States. Death asks Dream why he played their siblings' games, and Dream is all, despair totally started it, and Death basically shakes her head and says, whatever, dude. Five years later, San Francisco's pet emperor has lunch with a writer named Sam while Dream watches over him. Delirium shows up and wonders if the emperor should be hers. While Dream and Delirium catch up, Emperor Norton jots down a proclamation that his friend Sam writing under the name of Mark Twain, will be henceforth known as the official spinner of tales and teller of stories of these United States for the duration of his mortal lifetime. Delirium decides that the emperor is not hers, as his particular brand of madness keeps him sane. Dream says he's hardly the first. Eleven years later, we visit with the emperor again, who is selling currency to tourists and getting updates on diplomatic situations with San Francisco's Chinese community from Ah Hao, his chamberlain. Ah Hao takes him to the Cobweb Palace, where he has been summoned to meet with a dead businessman known as the King of Pain, who offers him a nice house and a beautiful aristocratic wife, if only he will want them. Norton refuses. He is emperor of the United States, and San Francisco treats him well. He wants for nothing. The King of Pain goes out to a coach to tell Desire that they failed in tempting the Emperor, and Desire cannot believe it. Dream is not surprised. The Emperor is a man of dignity, after all. Desire has no interest and rushes off with the King of Pain, pledging to one day get Dream to spill family blood. Fast forward to January 1880. The Emperor is rushing through the city on a rainy night and collapses, dead. Despair stands over his dying body, lamenting that in that time she never got him. He never despaired. Dream stands next to her and gives her a statuette of the Emperor and tells Despair to be grateful for the lesson. As he leaves, she asks, what lesson? Death comes to walk with the Emperor and says that out of all of the heads of state she's ushered to the great beyond, she liked him best. All right, Elisa. So here we are back in the saddle again. And I feel like we need to like give everybody a little bit of a heads up. Like for one, uh, we're, we're a little rusty. It's been a little while. Yes. I mean, not only have I forgotten a lot of the details of when Sandman issues originally came out, <laughs> but I seem to have forgotten, you know, where the microphone plugs in. <laughs> Yeah, it's been a whole thing. And I forgot my favorite part. Um, Elisa comes in today and she's like, yeah, you didn't finish the script. I'm like, I finished the script. And then I go down and my favorite parts were not there. And I was like, how? My favorite part of the whole podcasting gig is talking about my favorite part. How did I forget that? So we're we're a little rusty. We're also we've been very, very busy. Uh, We've been writing novels and you've been doing a number of different projects. So we've been writing. I've been working on a novel. Uh, you're part of my Year of Writing Magically workshop, which is a year-long, uh, long-form fiction writing workshop, which has been amazing. Uh, we've both been super, super busy. I moved. You've had a whole bunch of stuff going on. So uh, so what's going on with you? Now, what, what do we have to expect from Elisa Quitney in the upcoming months? 
Uh, oh gosh. Um, I, you know, I, I immediately wanted to say I've had frigidity going on. I've had a hole in my ceiling. <laughs> I've, I've thrown my back out. But those are not the things that we can expect from me. Um, I'm, I'm continuing to work on a new project with Maurice, <laughs> and um, I, uh, and I, and I also have a, a creep show story. Oh, oh my God! And the one thing that people can actually get into their hands and read is I, yeah. I have Chupahuawa, which is. Uh, in issue two of Cryptids from Ahoy Comics, mm-hmm. I think that's that's coming out in October, and awesome. and then in December uh, there there's going to be um, another Maurice and Quitney collaboration, and that will be a little a little creep show tale. Awesome, everybody! You can go to elisaquitney.com to find information about all of that stuff and follow her on various socials media. Which makes me realize I need to also update my website. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> That's all right. We've got three weeks between when we record and when this actually goes up. Another thing for everybody to know is that because we have been so busy, but because we so desperately wanted to hang out and also to continue talking to y'all about Sandman, we have decided to adjust our schedule to make it a little more uh, you know, compatible with our lives. So you are going to be getting episodes of Endless every two weeks two weeks and we are going through now what we're going to call the sandman shorts right the the one shots the the short stories that is the next thing that we're going to be going through but you know what i don't know all of you have noticed but we hopped into three septembers in january for this one and that's not really the first is it it's not we you know (laughs) I, i i definitely blame myself so first i i just pulled the Fables and Reflections uh, trade paperback out of my bookcase because that's how I do research. Mm-hmm. I'm like, this, the <laughs> short stories are in here. And then I, I've started again to work a bit with Neil on many Tuesdays uh, mm-hmm. where we're sort of together and co-writing and um, I'm letting my very small dog frolic with his very large dog, <laughs> except they can't frolic right now because she's gone into heat and his dog is, Ugh. yeah, not yet, Um Mm-hmm. safe for work um yes <laughs> so uh so anyway uh and then he, I was talking to him and he was talking about the distant mirrors storyline and you know sluggish brain cells from back in the day woke up and I thought oh yeah wait a minute that was the storyline that went after season of mists before a game of you and mm-hmm. this was not the order. I don't know why everyone changed the order every which way. Mm-hmm. But thematically, I don't think the order of the short stories, but I think doing uh, retroactively, I think doing yeah. the stories in the order they were written and published will allow us to talk about the themes of, mm-hmm. of kings and rulership uh, more more effectively. Uh, so, so you know, I, I always say, do not let the perfect be the enemy of the good. So we're going to. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> we're getting her done. So uh, we are doing three Septembers in January today. Uh, we'll let you know at the end we're going to be doing, I think, Thermidor next. But the, just don't expect the order to make a lot of sense. But we're going to try to to get this cart back on the road. And I am personally responsible for Thermidor being written when it was. So that's a little teaser. Uh-huh. I'll, I'll, I can't wait to hear that story. I, I think I'll have to. I didn't write it in the notes. I could either tell it this time or next time. I guess I'll tell it well, next I'll time. I'll tell it next I'll time. Tell it next Let's time. tease. Let's, Let's get people coming tease. back. We want them coming back to to read through uh, Sandman with us because it's so much fun. It's so much fun to get back into reading these comics. It's been a while, you know, and I sat down with the comic and I started getting into it and I was like, ah, yeah, it's like slipping into a warm bath. So, Elisa, what did you think of Three Septembers in a January? Well, one of the things that's that's appealing to me, I have to say that I've always loved the the Sandman short stories in, in a way, even more than the longer story arcs. I don't <laughs> know why there's a way in which they combine um, sort of the elements of a traditional folktale and the feels of a deep psychological dive into a character. Part of it is that there is this lovely tension between them, the short stories feeling like traditional folktales, but also allowing for a deeper psychological character study. Mm. Then, you know, the the longer arcs have a lot of other wonderful things about them, but those 
two things in there really, really appeal to me. And I like how this story can, you know, part of it seems like a folktale about, you know, what the world may perceive as weakness may actually be a strength. Uh, or it could also be a story about how, you know, our, our somewhat fragile constructs of identity can actually provide us with a surprisingly durable moral compass when desire offers <laughs> us, uh, you know, just delicious, delicious flesh. Delicious opportunities. Yes, absolutely. Um, I Yeah, it's I mean, first of all, the fact that, that we get these longer story arcs, you know, these seasons of uh, of Sandman and then the, the interspersed with these short stories, I really love because I think that the universe of Sandman is just too broad to be limited to one kind of storytelling within that space. So I really do enjoy that. Um, and this particular story I just found so incredibly sweet. And, and for me, like the, the themes that I was pulling out of it were these deep themes of community and how community should work. Because somebody who just declares themselves emperor of the United States is the kind of person that would be derided and made fun of and, you know, and, you know, you're crazy and all of this kind of stuff. And yet San Francisco, as a community, embraces him. They release currency in his name. They make statues. You know, they buy him dinner. Like there's there's something about that angle on the incredible power of community and and something that I think that we have kind of lost sight of, of what what community is supposed to be doing for all of us, you know, um, that I just I really loved. And so it gave me this like sweet, warm sense of, you know, this this guy, this emperor, you know, a dream and how he comes in and takes this guy from despair you know, into a, a place that may be, you know, slightly delusional, but why is that always a bad thing? And it is interesting that coming to this in 2023 instead of 1991, I'm, you know, unable to completely not think about other delusional leaders who have pretensions <laughs> to, to kingdom. And I'm thinking, you know, in some ways, that seems like a less benign idea than it did when it just yes. felt outlandish. <laughs> but, right. you know, but I like the idea that that perhaps we can see that there are two different kinds of delusions of monarchy. There's, you know, there's mm -hmm. the person who wants to rule to wield power and yeah. just be answerable to no one. And there is the kind of ruler who, who feels that they are in service to the public. And yes, exactly. And that's the way that 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 should absolutely be happening, you know, and it's it's interesting. And again, once again, like we get into these identity stories and I absolutely love a good identity story. And here we have um, a person who was, you know, on the brink of despair because he'd lost his identity. And, it, you know, he's talking about you know, he lost the ship and he lost the rice. And so he went broke and all of that kind of stuff. And he lost his his sense of himself. And this gave him his sense of himself back. And everybody embraced him with a pro-community perspective. And that's the thing is that everything like his way of approaching his emperorship was pro-community. The way the community responded to him was pro-community. There are other people who are not who are anti-community. And that's when things get dark. Oh, I, I love what you're pointing out, because I think what he lost in part was also faith in the reliability of his own judgment and his own choices. Yeah. So you you had, you know, talked a little bit about the real uh, Emperor Norton yeah. and he, you know, and, mm -hmm. and the financial he he alludes to it in the text of the comic. Right. includes that this was a uh, an economic, uh, what do you call it, a, a speculation that, that didn't yes. pan out. Mm -hmm. And um, you point out that in real life... And, and we'll talk about that in Lucian's yes. library. Yeah, in, in real life, it didn't seem quite so sweet <laughs> what this dude was doing. <laughs> but again, sometimes we pull things out for story that yeah. that has a different meaning and and it, it it may be that we like the delusional norton a great deal more than the non-delusional version 
I think that idea that we despair when we feel um, frustrated desire, mm-hmm. you know, desire where yes. we think we can no longer get our needs met. It's just hopeless. Um, mm-hmm. And and that, by the way, is informed by you having just talked to me about Emily Nagoski's amazing book, Come As You Are. Yes. Mm-hmm. But, but also when we can't trust the decisions we have made for ourselves in the past. And, and that's a theme that I've been always fascinated by in my own writing, the idea of how do you trust yourself again when you've, you know, more or less betrayed yourself? Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, that is a huge life experience to have, as how do you get that sense of faith in yourself when you've, you've made some poor decisions, when things have not worked out the way that you really, really thought that they would? Just lifting the microwave and yeah. thinking to yourself, this is a bad idea. I'm going to throw my back out. <laughs> and then there you go. And then you throw your back out. <laughs> All right. So let's go into this uh, issue. And of course, we always start with the amazing Dave McKean cover art. So the uh, original cover is a black and white line art of a, a sort of Victorian era building. It's one of the row houses of San Francisco. And we see one splash of vibrant color. It's a a figure that we assume we know to be Emperor Norton gazing out at us from his, you know, boarding house castle. Mm -hmm. I love this artwork and I think it's amazing, but did not recognize it as a Dave McKean cover because Dave McKean, we usually have all this mixed media. We have all this collage. We have all this sense of, um, you know, photos and everything like, you know, in kind of a, a mishmash. And here we have a very clean piece of line art and it's beautifully done, but it was a surprise. And then I was like, yeah, I didn't ever find the cover because I was looking at the things that I was missing in my notes this morning. I was like, yeah, I didn't talk about the cover. Where is the cover? So I started going through like my Dave McKean, you know, hard hardcover uh, book that I have, all the covers of Sandman, flipping through everything. And then I was like, oh, wait, it says Dave McKean right on the side of the of the line drawing that I did have but didn't recognize as his when I was going through the the comic book on Kindle, because sometimes these things are not clear. Um, but yeah, it was really nice to kind of see um, a simple piece of line art with this one vibrant bit. And it kind of feels like the space that Emperor Norton fits into in history. He's this one vibrant part of, of you know, of history explaining to us, showing to us who these people were by the way that they responded to him, you know, and the way that he was allowed to conduct himself, um, you know, in San Francisco. And it's just, it's a really nice reflection of that. And uh, just a beautiful, of course, it's Dave McKean. It's a beautiful piece of art. Yeah, absolutely. Very simple, like the story, but but memorable. Mm -hmm. All right. So let's talk a little bit about this story in context with the theme of the distant mirror story. Sure. So, okay, uh, I mentioned this before, but I'm going to go back Mm -hmm. over it because it's confusing because I got confused. (laughs) So the Emperor Norton story appeared as one of three short stories that were thematically linked and took place between the Season of Mist storyline and A Game of You. I believe that this is correct. Even though I was there, <laughs> uh, I, you know, maybe I made a mistake. Baby, it was 30 years ago. I can't remember what I did yesterday. So not only was it 30 years ago, but back in the spring of 1991, <laughs> I was getting ready to get married. I got married on June 9th mm-hmm. of that year. And I was also pretty new at DC Comics. So I hadn't been there a full year. It was when I got hired, I said, I am getting married and I'd like to be able to have a honeymoon. So it mixed in there. And I had a very strange honeymoon because um, (laughs) there was a family death involved with. So it was anyway. So I left and came back in the middle of all. I can only say life was distracting. Anyway, thematically, though. Norton's Mm -hmm. tale is very much about kings and power. Um, And, you know, and as I mentioned, really, this should follow Thermidor and August. Mm -hmm. And uh, we might also, uh, I think, include Sandman 50, Ramadan in here, which Mm -hmm. came later, but thematically kind of belongs. So we'll we'll talk about it. It's our podcast. We can do whatever we want. It's my (laughs) podcast I can do. Anyway, okay. Um, (laughs) 
All right. So um, this is sort of I, whenever I, I'm from the Upper West Side of New York. But whenever I go back there, it's not just that every store I remember has changed, but now they've changed all the street patterns and where the subway stations are. And I sometimes think, oh, no. this is not the way I remember it. I Then I look at pictures of, you know, old New York from the 50s mm-hmm. through the 80s. And I think, oh, that's the way it's supposed to look. So anyway, um, so this is this is how we've talked about maybe going back and and and. Mm-hmm. Uh, going over which comes next. But this is, I think, very much a story about the dignity of kings mm-hmm. and and the, the role of kings. So Norton's told by desire, uh, or so, I mean, so desire tells us, sorry, that Norton is roiling with desire for a sexual connection with a woman. But he's able to turn down the honey trap that she sets for him. <laughs> Because his dignity as an emperor, a, a king, an emperor, uh, comforts and sustains him. That's at least the explanation that Morpheus gives us. So desire yes. tells us he has desire. And mm-hmm. and dream tells us that it's his dignity that that prevents him from, from, you know, taking the bait. Which I think tells us as much about desire and dream as it does about... Emperor Norton. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I I was thinking, you know, how are we defining dignity here? Because it's a kind of interesting, it's one of the big mm-hmm. words. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I've been um, rereading Joan Didion and some of her essays, and she has this uh, essay on self-respect. And uh, there's a quote where she says something about a certain discipline, the sense that one lives by doing things one does not particularly want to do, by putting fears and doubts to one side, by weighing immediate comforts against the possibility of larger, even intangible comforts. Mm-hmm. So all in all, I think that if if Dream is right, and I suspect he, he may be here, that whatever... You know, whatever Norton's other problems, he's sustained by, you know, handouts and and, and free Mm -hmm. lunches. He is still a monarch that is defining himself as in service, kind of like the way the reason people who like the late Queen Elizabeth II like Mm -hmm. her because that's how she defined herself. Um, as opposed to, you know, the other kind of monarch who says, what is it? The state is me. I, I, I can't I mm-hmm. cannot remember that. In, can you do the French? What is le, la tarte? C'est, c'est moi. I, I cannot. But I think that you just did it excellently. I, so I'm going to let that. I, I think I probably screwed that up and someone's going to tell us. <laughs> Somebody absolutely will. Um, but yeah, like I, you know, there are different ways of looking at power. And it always seems like the people who actually want the power are the people who should never have it. Yes. But he is not looking for power here and he does not have power here. If he was looking for power, he would be completely disappointed by this outcome. But what he wanted to do was to be a head of state. You know, to be someone that people could look to as a, a, almost a personification, you know, of the the country's soul, right? You know, he is Emperor Norton. Um, and one of the things, too, the desire says is like, how are we going to have any Norton's Norton's too? How are we going to have how is this going to continue on if you don't grab one of these nice aristocratic young ladies? Um, and he just does not seem interested in that like he knows that he could have more but he doesn't want more like he is incredibly pleased with what he has now and that comes down to like the value of knowing who you are and being that thing you know fully fully knowing yourself like living from the inside out Mm. which is this uh, this idea of of experiencing life as you genuinely are rather than how you want people to see you or how you feel other people expect you to be, you know, like that's the out that's living from the outside in to live from the inside out is an incredibly authentic way to live. And it can be really difficult to do because the expectations of others are important to a degree, you know, I mean, they do matter. It's just how much, 
you understand your own authenticity, how well you know yourself and who you are, and how well you can put yourself as you authentically are in the right place that needs you to be that thing. That is a very, very difficult dance to do properly. And I think a lot of us get wound up in expectations and this is how it should be and this is how I should be and all of that kind of stuff. And it's hard to separate out what is authentically you from what is the performative you performing for everyone else. And Norton seems to have found exactly that. He found his shape and he found the part of the puzzle that he fits in. And now why could he, why would he want anything else? Yes. And, you know, again, looking through the lens of 2023, I also think that the willingness to have power and not try to hold on to it, you know, mm -hmm. either personally or through your your appointed heirs, your line, is right. a, a, a fine quality in a, in a human being or, or I guess a member of the endless, too. Exactly. <laughs> Um, yeah, no, I really, I really enjoyed all of that about him. And I think that's part of what makes him such a fun character to read because, you know, we were talking about how he's delusional, you know, maybe he's less delusional than we are. And mm. if you look at it in a certain way, because if you know yourself, if you know who you are, if you can be authentically you, I mean, you know, that's the most grounded any of us could hope to be. Yes. And the funny thing is, I mean, at, in this day and age, and even to some extent, I think, uh, when this, you know, time period of the 1800s, monarchs weren't absolute rulers anymore. Mm -hmm. Some of them were already on their way to being figureheads. Certainly kings and queens are figureheads now. So what they mm -hmm. wield is what's called soft power, the power of influence. And, you know, he actually did wield a certain amount of soft power. Mm hmm. Yeah. Which is absolutely incredible. Um, I also love that we have a, a writer. Right. We have Sam Clemens as Mark Twain, you know, uh, struggling with all of his stuff. So what did you think about the the inclusion of, you know, writers writing about writers? Because we've had, you know, Sandman interacting with William Shakespeare. Now here we are experiencing Mark Twain. We wrote about, you know, writers who have a, a bit of success and writers who desire success in Calliope, which also kind of feels a little bit like a prelude Knowing yourself, knowing who you are versus wanting to be something performative and have other people see you a certain way. So that kind of fits a little bit thematically into here. Uh, but here we are once again, you know, hanging out with writers, talking about the experience of being a writer. What did you think of that? I love that. I love the theme of writers in Sandman mm -hmm. and the fact that you get to see you know, the great Mark Twain and his, it, you know, that that was his pen name. I, I mm -hmm. guess most people listening probably know this, but Mark Twain has to do with a measurement on a stick. He was working on a um, a ferry, wait, was it a ferry boat? Yeah, it was steamboat, yeah. right? Yeah. No, not a steamboat. I think it was, uh, oh, okay. it was like the, it was the transport, mm -hmm. the, 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 either the raft or the, the, the crafts that transported goods. Uh -huh. And so Mark okay. Twain mm -hmm. was sort of one of the marks. I'm showing it with my hands, which is so useful yeah. on a podcast, <laughs> uh, where the water comes up to. So I think the thing that I love about us watching his frustration as he tries to make mm -hmm. a story work, and of course he was a humorist, a satirist, mm -hmm. um, is, is that, you know, we see him working hard. We see him getting this pivotal bit of, you know, advice from, from Emperor Norton, you know, tell a funny story. Mm -hmm. People love a funny story. But above that, we see him getting this, this sort of formal uh, declaration, you know, you are the official writer of, what is it? Uh -huh. The official writer of the United, storyteller of the United States. Yes. Mm -hmm. And I actually think there is something true in that, you know, it's a wink at the reader. But mm -hmm. there is some way in which I think a lot of writers, myself included, are always looking for permission. We're looking for Dumbo's feather that, you know, to mm -hmm. hold in our trunk and convince us that we can fly when that capacity is within us. We don't really need to hold on to that feather. Uh, mm -hmm. it's, it's our enormous ears, obviously, <laughs> that, that make us capable of great things. So I, I like that idea that he gets a kind of permission 
And maybe the writer's delusion is that you need this. You need someone to give you a contract before you can write. You need someone to say, yes, yes, please tell me your story uh, Mm -hmm. before you stop inhibiting yourself. It is. You know, it's it's very challenging. I think that there is there is something um, that feels almost uh, presumptuous to be like, I'm going to write a story that other people are going to care about. Like, why does anybody care about this? You know, um, and that's part of one of the things in, in the Year of Writing Magically workshop that the first thing we sat down and I was like, what are your fears? What are the things that you feel like are holding you back? Um, and forget all of them, process them, look at them, put them in a box and set them aside because you've just as much right to tell your story as anybody else does. But you have to go through, I think that, that bit of a process, like it's not enough to walk through your fears as a writer once, put it all away and then say, well, I'm done with that. You have to do it for every project. It's almost a ritual. It's almost Uh. a pre-writing ritual where you you go through this process of being like, here are the reasons why I feel like I am not worthy of telling stories, you know, out there in the universe um, and reasons why I'm afraid of doing that and all of that. And I think it does. It, it orients us again inside out as opposed to outside in, you know, doing the thing that we feel drawn to do because it is authentically us. And not letting the the views of the world or other people stop us from becoming the Emperor Norton that we know we can be. Oh, a good gazucked, as my grandmother would have said. Good, good. Well, well said. <laughs> well, thank you. Now I'm going to ask a question. Yes. Because I was confused. Um, I'm not really sure what the game is exactly. Like, Despair had him. Right. She had him. We open up with despair, who is mocking and taunting this dude who is ready to take his life. She had him. Then she calls Dream in and says, why don't you rescue him? And then we get this sense from death that there is a game involved. And and Dream even says, I'm not playing your game. And then she spends like two seconds. She doesn't even get to entirely push the button. She just reaches for the button that she he knows he has. And he's like, yeah, right, fine, I'm in. Um, and then death comes in. She's like, why are you playing this game? But like, was it that despair wanted to take him from Dream to be like, here, give him something to live for so that I feel a little bit of a challenge and destroying everything you're trying to do. Or, you know, is it just games for game's sake Then we have desire involved, trying to take him away from dream at a certain point, um, despair at the end, acknowledging he, I never got him, you know, you, you made this happen. I never got him. And then dream says, be grateful for the lesson. And despair, of course, is like, what, what lesson? Like no clue. Right. And I'm not really sure either how this game was supposed to work. Was it just that they wanted him to try something so that they could fail? Was it Lucy with the like football? Like, here's the football. Let me take it away from you. I, you know, I think that if the Endless had parents, this would be the sibling game of, you know, mother always loved you best. Um, But I think there is, is some way in which in the alliances of the family, um, the missing sibling and death and dream formed mm-hmm. one group and yeah. destiny off to the side. Uh, and and then, you know, you've got despair and desire and they mm-hmm. they form a union unit. And then, you know, you've got delirium who used to be delight. Um, mm-hmm. ooh, did I spoiler that? That's all right. Ah, sorry. I think probably most of the people listening to this have already read. I'm not sure anybody is reading Sandman for the first time and listening to this podcast. But if you're out there and spoilers are a thing for you, then whoops. Sorry. Let's just keep going. I've managed. <laughs> I've managed not to say You've the name of the good. missing sibling. So that I know. That I don't it. even know who the missing sibling is. I'm the only one. I think the only one here who hasn't read this stuff before. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, it's, uh, you know, it's demonstrable. Um, mm-hmm. so, uh, it's not, it's not that. Anyway, um, <laughs> I think that what the game is, is despair saying, I am you know, torturing this little fluffy animal with, with despair. Can you rescue it using your tools? Mm-hmm. And, um, 
you know, it's it's it reminds me of that improv game where you stand in a circle and everyone takes a pretend object and has to do something different with it. Mm-hmm. And you you can't imitate what the other person has done. So they each have to do it within their character. So despair is giving him all the despairs and desire mm-hmm. is working on his desires. Um, so Dream is trying to figure out if this person has a dream Mm-hmm. And it's really interesting because uh, what we see is that he doesn't have a dream. He, mm-hmm. you know, so so what Dream does is he gives him a dream. Mm-hmm. And in a weird way, I suspect that the dream that Dream gives Norton is Dream's own dream. Ooh, interesting. Say more about that. It just occurred to me as I yeah. was riffing here that the dream he gives him is the dream of being a ruler, but a ruler mm-hmm. who is satisfied on some deep uh, elemental level by his uh-huh. role, which is a role of service. Mm-hmm. Um, this is a little bit of an aside, but a friend was just asking me about the four love languages, which I believe oh, are... Yeah. Acts of service, uh, mm-hmm. words you know, of affirmation, words of aff- physical touch, gifts. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I just want to say that in general, you want someone who is fluent in more than one or two, right? I mean, it'd be no good if someone gave you words of affirmation and loving touch, but never took out the trash or paid the bills. <laughs> so, uh, you know, anyway, but that's, but mm-hmm. so I think that, that Morpheus kind of gives. Norton a gift in his love language which is you know this is uh-huh. this is the dream of my purpose and my meaning and maybe mm-hmm. that is why it resonates so strongly with dream interesting and that's how despair knew how to nab him i mean despair knew how to nab him mm. you know she she knew she knew how to get dream they she knew how to get in there you know oh i think we're a they right Oh, dis- desires of they. Oh, dis- despair, yeah, despair in the beginning. Yeah. Oh, you're right. Right, right, right. Oh, yeah. despair is, yes, despair is, is yeah. So no. Despair starts it off, yes. right? Yes, you know, yes. I think that, that she and desire are, are two sides of, of a coin. They're the twins, you know, so like they're they're reflective of each other. Um, but despair is the one who starts it off, you know, uh, sitting there with him, you know, with Joseph while he was at his lowest point. Um, she had him in her hands. She didn't, you know, but she gave him to dream to prove that he couldn't take this from her, that he couldn't do better than she could, you know, um, that his his dream space. And the thing, I, I love, too, where he says without dreams, there is no despair, you know. Um, without the aspiration, without the, the you know, the looking forward to something, without that hope, there is no despair. And I kind of love that. I do, too. By the way, th- this just popped into my head. And I just wanted to say that when I think of ways in which Sandman, I mean, in general, Sandman is, to me, really not dated at all. Mm-hmm. But every once in a while, there'll be a moment and I think, Oh, yeah, that was the late 90s or that was, sorry, the early 90s, which looked a little Mm -hmm. like the late 80s. Yeah. So one of the things that I think is interesting to see that wouldn't be done now, I I do not think Neil would do it this way now, is the only character who isn't Allie McBeal skinny is Mm -hmm. Despair. Yes. And, Mm -hmm. And we don't have her, she is, she is larger and also not depicted as beautiful which right i understand thematically because when i am in despair you know i that is that is not when i am feeling that i look my best yes but mm-hmm. i do think that um that to have no no sense of the glamour or beauty of a, a character that's sort of female-ish you know, that mm-hmm. is larger and there isn't another that I, I am recognizing out there. I, I think that that is is definitely something of the 90s where mm-hmm. uh, the 90s were were a, a time when it went back to that very, very skinny, uh, waif-like female ideal. So anyway, I just wanted to make a little nod to that. 
Right. Yeah. I mean, that is something that like to to find the degree of of the association culturally of fatness with despair, with giving up, with, you know, not not bothering anymore, you know, um, and and fatness also as a, a moral failing, you know, is something that we've had culturally and especially like in the 80s. Like I remember all of that, like it was. We have associated so strongly fatness with that that lack of of moral fortitude, that lack like a lack of genuine goodness. Um, and that is something that we are only beginning to sort of break that association now. So the idea that the only fat character is the one that is in this deep despair, that is monstrous in the way that she looks, that is wandering around just naked and being fat all over the place as though that in itself is a visualization of her lack of of character or whatever. I think it's definitely something, you know, that we culturally need to look at now a lot um, because it was so it's been so strongly ingrained in the way that we see things and having um, more than one character that is of a different body size, you know, is, is great. And, you know, we're we're getting more of that now. So I do definitely appreciate that we're seeing more of that happening now and we're moving in, in the right direction with that. Um, but I wanted to talk to you a little bit about um fiction and history, mm. you know, um, and this thing that that uh, I, I love the way that Sam and I'll talk a little bit specifically about the history of the real Emperor Norton and Lucian's library. Um, but I do like the way that that Neil kind of pulls from from history. I mean, the um, encephalitis lethargica was an actual thing that affected millions of people across the world in the early 20th century. Um, and if you've seen the movie Awakenings, as I was doing some research on this, I discovered that the movie Awakenings was about the people who had survived that and still remained in, in a state of catatonia. And Oliver Sacks came in and started working with them to try to find a way to bring them back. But it was those people. It was those same people. You know, it was grandma um, from uh, from Rose uh, from the doll's house. Um, and so I thought that was really interesting. And, and to this day, they, they really don't understand exactly what was happening. And I, I, I want to say that, you know, the squatting that despair does is really very healthy. And I think we need to, you know, all the endless should be squatting. <laughs> All the endless should be squatting. Squatting should be, you know, is a is a moral good. We should absolutely be doing that. Yeah. Um, but anyway, so like the the taking of these things in history, you know, the the grabbing of Emperor Norton. We've got some Shakespeare. We've got real people. We got Mark Twain. Um, you know, I I love the way the that um Neil kind of does that and folds that into these fictional worlds. This fictional story. Um, and using fiction to contextualize real experiences, you know, um, I just think it's it's a very cool idea. And I've never I don't think I've ever really even thought about doing that myself. Like I, if I'm telling a fiction story, it is all made up. I'm not including like real people. Um, but I do kind of love and, you know, and Mark Twain was in San Francisco like during this time frame, you know, so it's. It's so neat to be able to, you know, kind of dip into various spaces within our history, especially unexplained things, and explain them through the fiction of Sandman, which really is what we've been doing from the mythology is fictionalizing the things that we don't quite have a grasp on and giving them an explanation. And so Sandman, it does kind of have that, that mythological feel to it. Yeah, absolutely. I think that um I think that when Neil was writing these stories, it, I'll go in in Lucien's library to talk about what his source yes. was, but this was a time when you couldn't just google where things came mm -hmm. from and it it made it made the stuff that he found even more rare. You know, this was before they could culture pearls, goddammit. He had to <laughs> dive down and bring up a completely sealed oyster. Mm-hmm. <laughs> 
I love that. All right. Well, let's go ahead. Let's transfer into Lucianne's library and do a little bit of that chatting. What was the source material that Neil was working from where he got the information about Emperor Norton? I first heard about Emperor Norton. I recognized it when I started reading it because I was like, oh, I've heard about that guy um, because I listened to a podcast. I think it was Noble Blood. It might have been. No, but I know I was listening to a podcast where they were talking about Emperor Norton. Um so so tell me about where did where did he get this information? So I actually Googled and found myself on the online version of, of uh, Neil's journal, which he kept for a mm-hmm. long time. And he mentions the Barbary Coast by, oh, mm-hmm. God, now I've forgotten who it was. Someone Asbury. Someone Asbury. Mm-hmm. And then, someone Asbury. And then I looked it up on Amazon and found the Barbary Coast, an informal or informal history of the San Francisco underworld. So that is the book that it came from. It's got lots of other characters as well. I remember that around this time, I think I was saying like, how do you get so many cool stories? And Uh I think, I can't remember, I have the book still somewhere, but uh, Panati's book of like endings or it's, uh, Panati had mm-hmm. compiled these this book of lots of people's deaths or lots of people's, uh, you know, bizarre last words. Mm-hmm. And so there were these little vignettes. And so I think back in the day, Neil did gravitate to finding these little books that collected nuggets of, of the quirky mm-hmm. and wonderful. And um And I think that it's not a bad idea for writers to consider now that, you know, aside from just looking everything up on Google, there are these wonderful curated books of, of, you know, the unusual, the historical, the strange. And um, yeah, so it's a good trove. So uh, that's Barbary Coast, Informal History of the San Francisco Underworld, and also look up the Panati books of Remarkable. Mm -hmm. That's not for this, but I know that Neil recommended it to me. Back when the world was young and uh, everyone on Ally McBeal had a thigh the size of a matchstick. <laughs> wow, we have lived through a lot, a lot of truly terrible things. All right. So talk to me a little bit about short stories. Um, you know, we the Sandman started out as a, a, like a serialized um, thing. We were going from, you know, like these seasons of storytelling why did we did you guys go to this short story format in between like what was the motivation for that so i asked neil about this i i got to see him fairly recently mm-hmm. and um and what he said was you know i think we talked about this a little in a previous mm-hmm. season of the podcast yeah. that he didn't know that the numbers would be good enough to keep the mm-hmm. book going past issue 8 And so he Mm -hmm. was really ready to wrap things up. Um, And I think that, you know, he knew that Season of Mists was going to tickle people, as I think he's put it, where where they like to be tickled. (laughs) And so he, he also wanted to, you know, take some time to do some shorter stories where you could just, you know, finish what you want to say in 24 pages, which is how Uh long uh, these were. Um, And also then begin to reflect in little ways on the themes. One of the other things I'm mixing up. It's funny. There are things I wrote in the script in different places. But um, he talked about wanting to, you know, preserve Morpheus, like not getting, not allowing the reader to get bored by him and Mm -hmm. often by having him not the center of everything. And Niels pointed out that's a challenge with a TV series where there's even more pressure to keep Morpheus on stage. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think that there's there's an element of using Morpheus as a spice. Structurally, I'll tell you that we found it hard on this series. We took something that was uh, difficult, finding one artist who could just do everything and mm-hmm. and turned it into a real advantage. So, you know, often in comics now you'll have one shots or, or you know, little standalones mm-hmm. that you pop in with a different artist to buy the regular artist some time. Yeah. But um, this idea of really creating themed stories that, you know, hang together and and Mm -hmm. show different sides of characters and different sides of um 
of the themes that resonate through the longer storylines. I don't know that that was ever done before in comics. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking of Love and Rockets, uh, which is a wonderful, um, a wonderful, very long uh, standing series by the Hernandez brothers. But I again, I, I, I'm not there are so many more knowledgeable people than I am. So I will just leave it to them to say, <laughs> yes, of course, Love and Rockets does did this at the same time or before or, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but the other thing that I think is really cool about this. So I, I think at, at, before this podcast began, I was telling you, you must. I'm forcing you to watch Reservation Dogs, yes. which is my new favorite, favorite series. I am watching and rewatching. One of the things that I love about it is it's an ensemble cast and you'll get short stories where you highlight mm-hmm. one or two characters, sometimes characters that we are aware of, some that are so tangential, we think, wait, who is this? Is it is this the <laughs> grandmother? Is this, oh, wait, is that the same character 30 years earlier? It's mm-hmm. such a fascinating way of of braiding in all of these stories mm-hmm. And it, the fact that you see it in Sandman, you know, from the early 90s is, I think, part of what made this series feel so groundbreaking and, and keeps it feeling very fresh. Yeah, I absolutely love that. I mean, I love that it it is. I mean, of course, it's become a challenge for us to try to figure out, like, what order we should do the podcast in. And we forget about whole sections of it. But, you know, we're getting there. It's all fine. Um, but yeah, like it is it is really neat to have these, you know, uh, these stories that that go along this series and we have the same characters and we're seeing them evolve and we're seeing the whole story come to like this more traditional sort of end. And then here we are dancing around in time, you know, like this is the 1850s. This is before um, of late 1850s, 1860s, 1880s, I think. And so this is before Sandman got kidnapped. This is before, you know, he had the experience that was so defining for him, this, this pivot point in his evolution, you know, and still trying to figure out how to live his existence from the inside out. Right. And, and, and doing it through this experience with, uh, with Emperor Norton, which I think is so fun. But before we go and before we wrap everything up as we have to, because we are running a little bit long, but it's been so long. Um, I do want to talk about, as I've been promising the whole time, the actual Joshua Abraham Norton, um, the real dude, um, uh, you know, he was a dude who just decided he was going to be emperor of the United States. Um, he went broke, though, trying to corner the rice market during a shortage because of a famine in China. So l- a little bit of dickhead energy, I feel like, is going on there. Um, but uh, but in September of 1859, he declared himself emperor of the United States. And for some reason, the people in San Francisco were like, yeah, sure. He was putting all these proclamations in the paper and he was amusing. He, they didn't have tv back then right so it was like their own you know the the community's own entertainment you know the this man would walk throughout the community people would see him he was famous they had currency that was accepted at you know at some like restaurants and pubs and stuff would be like yes absolutely this is the emperor norton you know dollar or whatever and so they would accept that People, you know, he didn't have anything. People bought him clothes. They bought him food. They like they kept him as well as they could as an emperor. And there is something about that that is so weird and so easily lost in the narrative of the United States. Those those moments are lost in a narrative that tends to lean toward telling and retelling the stories of power and you know disaster and you know, tragedy and strength and all of these really big escalating you know kinds of stories whereas there is something i think very american about wandering down the street and saying i'm emperor now right it feels it's it's highly american energy right with that except that he turns it into and i hope that in the actual reality he also turned it into a position of service 
Um, it is also said that Mark Twain fashioned the character of King in the adventures of Huckleberry Finn on Emperor Norton. Um, and the King of Pain was a real character, too. Uh, San Francisco had a few of these guys running around town. This guy was J.J. Uh, McBride. He was a snake oil salesman and a con man who spent a little time in San Francisco during Norton's reign. So I think that was really kind of like neat thing to pull in. Um, I love that he, you know, the King of Pain was dead and desire was just like, you are coming to work for me now, you know, which I think I absolutely love that from desire. Um, but if you go to emperornortontrust.org, you can find like now Neil didn't have it back then, but we have it now a website that is just about this dude. Uh, so definitely recommend it. Link will be in the show notes. All right. So, Elisa, here we are. What is your favorite piece of art from this? Um, I think, well, no one does a flying frog like uh, the <laughs> artist John McManus, who did, you know, he also mm -hmm. did uh, most of A Game of You, and he does an amazing job here. Um, I also really love that final scene where despair is first squatting by the dead Emperor yeah. Norton, and then he's alone. And then we see the tuxedo-clad uh, legs of death. Yes. Who dressed up for the occasion. She always... I absolutely love yeah. that. I love that. Um, for me, like, I love... Whenever Delirium shows up, I love... I love the lettering, Todd Klein, his, the lettering that is so you know, out of a lot, it, it fluctuates and it gives this sense of movement on the page along with these, you know, pastel, fading pastel watercolors kind of behind in her speech bubble. I, I the lettering and, and again, granted, I haven't read a lot of comics. Um, so I, there may be other letterers out there that have done similar work. I'm sure that there are, but I have to say like the genius in the way that the lettering expresses the character's voice, it's so beautifully done. I absolutely adore it. And we have a lot of that in here. We have despair, we have desire, we have delirium, and, and of course, dream and death. Like, death is normal, right? Yes. Like everybody else, which I absolutely love is so perfect. I, I have to say that Todd Klein has won just about every lettering award there is to Should win. Be. And yes, and good. with reason, I also realized I didn't mention this, but there is a moment where Delirium talks about uh, the Chinese uh, women who, uh, mm -hmm. you know, uh, were, were sex workers and how badly they were treated. And, you know, in the whole opium as a as a way out mm -hmm. of that. So I, it's it's just a in a, a story that is mainly light and funny. There is a, a gentle nod to you know, to their stories, which is also very... Yeah, to the, the human darkness that even in kind of a sweet story about the community of San Francisco, there's still some darkness in there. And we have a little bit of that. We have a nod uh, with Ah How in the Chamberlain scene where he's, you know, he's talking with Emperor Norton, you know, they're having a conversation and then some racist dude comes in and starts saying stuff. And Ah How plays into those racist stereotypes to get rid of him so he can actually have a conversation um, with, uh, with Emperor Norton. And I, I liked that moment. I mean, it is like, of course, there's this, this uncomfortable moment where you're like, wow, that's some stereotype. But the, but the whole point of it is, and why we need to think deeply when we see these things, is that Ah How was completely in charge of that interaction. And Ah How was using that man's racism to get rid of him. And when he was speaking with Emperor Norton, there was none of that nonsense, right? So, like, that representation, I felt, was really nicely done, especially for a time period in our stories when we were not that, you know, we, we weren't usually that good about that kind of thing and understanding the humanity of all of the people that are on the page. Uh, so I absolutely loved that. And I'm, I'm glad you mentioned it because otherwise I might have forgotten to point that out. Um, OK, so your favorite part of the story. What is your favorite part of the story? You know, I I, I may change this tomorrow, but right now it's the 16 dams of, of Mark Twain struggling with the story. A writer I, being frustrated. How seen do you feel in that moment? <laughs> Damn. <laughs> Feel damn, seen. Damn. Damn. Yeah, absolutely. Very, very seen. How about um, you? For me, it's, oh, it's death coming in at the end. Oh, God. When she puts on the emperor's hat 
when she says you are my favorite of all of the emperors that I've ushered, you know, out of this life. Um, there's just it's it's such a sweet thing. I love death, how grounded she is with everybody, how connected she is to everybody, how above all the bullshit she is. Um, I, I just whenever she shows up on the page, I'm delighted. All right. If you enjoyed this discussion and would like to join in, Patreon supporters can chat with us and each other through our Patreon Discord channel. To find out how you can support Chipperish Media, visit patreon.com slash chipperish. Other ways to show your support? Write a great review on Apple Podcasts, tell your friends about the show, or be content to be who you are. <laughs> Thanks so much for joining us today. As we've said, we had some difficulty figuring out what stories we should do and in what order. So we are going to just bundle all the Sandman shorts together. We will be back next time with Sandman number 29, Thermidor. Also, expect Endless every two weeks. Just a reminder, every two weeks, now that we are back on track. <laughs> all right. So until next time, sir, this conversation is unfitting and it is at an end. Thank you.